Welcome to the 140th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, we will do our weekly division-by-division look at Major League Baseball and talk further about the NBA playoffs, which are in their first round. Let's start with a look at Major League Baseball, starting as always in the American League East. Where the Toronto Blue Jays lead the division at 8-5, and five. the Yankees are in second at 7-6, and six, tied with the Tampa Bay Rays at 7-6, and six. Boston is one game behind them at 6-7, six and seven. and Baltimore's at the bottom, as expected, at 4-9. and nine. Also, that is the second-worst record in the AL. Uh, there is one worse team, and honestly, it's somewhat surprising, but maybe not too surprising. Uh, but, look... The, the, the Blue Jays score a lot of runs. Uh, the Rays have done a good job scoring runs. Surprisingly, the Rays pitching staff has actually been the thing that's let them down the most, allowing the most runs out of anybody in the division and the second most in the AL, only second to the Angels. Uh, well, only second to the Angels and the, and the Rangers, I should say. So actually third, but I mean, that Rangers number, that, that caught me off guard. I'll, I'll get to that one later, but uh, that's a big number already. Um, but... The Blue Jays, uh, not actually, kind of the opposite of last year, where last year they were not necessarily hovering around 500, but only a few games over very, very late in the season with some ridiculous plus 80 or plus 100 run differential, something in that er in that area. This year, only plus two in run differential, but three games above 500, so looks like that run differential luck has uh, turned around uh, in the Blue Jays' favor. Then you have the Yankees, who... The Yankees are going to be the Yankees. I, I think they'll figure it out by the end of the season, but they they shouldn't be staying kind of playing this way for too long, I will say. They, they do need to figure out at some point, but I have a feeling they will soon. I have a feeling they're going to pick up some momentum soon. Uh, and as long as they can avoid injuries and keep their pitching staff healthy, which is something they failed to do the last few years, then they'll be able to stay as a good team and they'll contend for the title. But they got to make the playoffs first, and this division is tough. It's also made tougher by the fact that there are the Tampa Bay Rays, although interestingly enough, when you look at these two teams, the Yankees have a run differential of plus two also, but or have a plus two uh, have plus two run differential just like the Blue Jays. Uh, the Rays are plus five, but the Rays actually, a team normally known for their pitching and, you know, kind of mix and match lineup where they just get enough runs to win, they actually have 60 runs scored, uh, which is four, which is fifth. In the AL behind Cleveland, LA, uh, the Angels, the A's, and the Rangers. Uh, but they have also given up 55 runs. So just a plus five run differential for them. Surprising because normally their pitching is very, very, very good. Uh, but And then the Yankees, on the other hand, with their all-star, star-studded lineup, whatever you want to call it, they only have 39 runs on the season, which is a very, very low number uh, when you compare it to the rest of the teams in their division, only the Orioles with less, and only they're actually the only team other than the Orioles that's under 50 runs this year so far. So uh, I don't think it's something to worry about uh, yet, honestly. I think this year the league has, I think everybody's power numbers are a little bit down right now, and uh, I think the Yankees are suffering from that because they're a team that has a lot of power hitters on the team. So they need their home runs to fall, uh, or they need their home runs to I said home runs to fall because I'm thinking basketball like shots to fall, but they need their home runs to come in and they need them uh, to produce their runs. They're not going to be a team that's going to move everybody around the bases with singles and with walks. That's just not really their 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 team makeup. So uh, they're going to need the power to come back again, and uh, I, I don't doubt that it will. Uh, and then finally, 
I'll talk about the Red Sox and somewhat skip over the Orioles, although, you know, we end up never talking about these teams later in the season, so I should talk about them now, I guess. Uh, but the Red Sox, they're doing okay. Uh, th- there's not really much to say about them. 50 runs scored, 53 runs against. So uh, slightly below average pitching, probably around average, maybe a little bit above on offense. Uh, but overall, minus three run differential, six and seven, that, that's about expected in terms of what your run differential should be for a team that's one game under 500. Uh, but overall, I think they'll figure it out too, just like I have the faith in the Yankees to do so. Although I'm not, I'm not sold at all on the Red Sox making the playoffs because I really do think that there will be one, at least one team from the Central and the West to be a wild card team, which means that one AL East team has to miss the playoffs. The Rays just are always in it for who really knows the reason, but they are always in it. Uh, and then you have the Blue Jays, who I think are the division favorite. So I, I think you're looking at the Rays and the Blue Jays, and then I'm saying out of the Yankees and the Red Sox, I think the Yankees are better. So the Red Sox are going to have to be the one who fights with those teams from the Central and the West, uh, and we'll see how that turns out for them. And uh, the other thing is they have to play these AL East teams so much, it's going to bring the record down, whereas the AL West, no offense to them, but the Oakland A's do not look like, well, they've looked like a good team to start the year, but the roster does not look like one of a championship contender or even a playoff contender, to be quite honest. Uh, and then you also have uh, the Rangers at the bottom of that, who are currently the worst team in the AL that we'll get to later. So whoever doesn't win that division of the Astros, Mariners, and Angels, they look like the three favorites right now. Whoever doesn't win that division, they don't really have much competition against them. And the Central is kind of the same way in terms of if Cleveland or if the Tigers can get going, they the Royals are kind of a weak team. The Guardians would be... Whoever is second place in this division is probably going to be the weakest second place team in the league, I would argue. Uh, and the third and fourth and fifth place teams, they're all okay, but none of them are great. So uh, they, they Red Sox might struggle is my point here. Uh, but speaking of that central division, let's move on to that central division where the Cleveland Guardians lead at seven to, or they at seven and five. Uh, they have a one game lead over the White Sox currently after playing the White Sox in a series where they were able to take two of those three games or yeah, two of those three. Actually, no, they swept them. I did not know they swept them. Surprisingly, they swept them. Uh, but the White Sox, again, another one of those teams, not too worried about it long term. Only thing I'm worried about with the White Sox is that they are so injured and they're so banged up and they're not doing well uh, holding up with those injuries. Although A.J. Pollock, I think, is returning to the lineup tonight after he has been out for a while. So maybe they're starting to get a little bit healthier again. But overall, I I don't like how injured they are because that was kind of their downfall or the start of their downfall last season. And that's kind of what brought their season to an end. Uh, But for Cleveland, plus 25 run differential. Third in the league, and we'll, I think so. you could probably guess who the first two are when you look at the overall records, but we'll get to those teams later. Every other team in this division with a negative run differential. The White Sox on a four-game losing streak at minus eight on, in run differential, though that's a little bit skewed by a game they lost 11-1, where uh, Corey Kluber gave up, or not Corey Kluber, sorry, but Dallas Keuchel, sorry, uh, right initials-ish, wrong name, uh, <laughs> gave up 10 runs in the second inning alone, uh, so, or 10 runs in the first two innings, so not 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 good. Uh, but that, that's why their run differential is a little bit skewed, but otherwise they've been they've been decent. Uh, then you have the Royals at 5-6, who have had some exciting moments, some good debuts. 
uh, and that kind of a thing. A good return was Zach Granke, but that team is really a story that feels like they have good stories, but I don't know about the players themselves, to be quite honest, uh, other than Bobby Wood Jr. and Whit Merrifield. Uh, and, you know, they have some other guys, too, that are pretty good, but I, I just think overall, and obviously Salvador Perez, uh, but... I, I just think overall, I'm not looking at a team that can contend for a playoff spot. So I don't really believe that much in them. Uh, but if you go beyond the Royals, you have the Tigers at 5-7, and seven, two games back, and the Twins at 5-8, and eight, two and a half games back. I don't think there's much to talk about with these teams. They're just kind of struggling out of the gate. There's nothing too big about it. The only thing that you can talk about is the fact that Miguel Cabrera uh, is on the verge of getting his 3,000th hit. It won't happen today because their game got postponed, but it probably... Don't want to jinx it, but most likely will happen tomorrow with two games. All he needs is one hit in at least probably six or seven at-bats. And he did go three for three in his last game, or he was three for three in his last game. Uh, And then, actually, they intentionally walked him in his final at-bat. So, yeah, he ended up three and three, too. Uh, But overall, Central Division, we'll see how it turns out. It'll be an interesting one to watch, but maybe won't turn out with more than one playoff team. Maybe it will. Maybe it will turn out with multiple Uh, more than two even. Uh, But let's move on to the West, finally, where the Los Angeles Angels are in first uh, after going seven and three in their last 10 games and winning their last two, both of those games over the Astros. They are eight and five on the year. The A's are right behind them at eight and six with a plus 16 run differential. So somewhat convincing, uh, although their schedule, maybe not so much because they had to play Baltimore already. So they got lucky there. (laughs) Uh, but if you move on, you have the Mariners at seven and six, one game back. Uh, the Astros at six and six, one and a half games back, and then the Rangers, the worst team in the AL, one of the worst in all of baseball. Although there is one that is worse and looking way, way worse than them uh, in the NL that we'll get to. But let's go back to the top of the division, where uh, if you look at it, it really starts with their best players when Shohei is playing well, when Mike Trout is playing well. They're a great team when they're not. They're really not, and, uh, you know, the start of the season, they were both off to rough starts, except for Shohei was still pitching decently, Uh, except for then, now, Shohei's pitching amazing, and Mike Trout is finally feeling like he's back to Mike Trout, which is hard to get back to, honestly, when you've been injured at all, because it's almost impossible to be Mike Trout in the first place, Uh, and Shohei has been hitting better and pitching better as of recent, especially in that last start that he just had, I think that was last night, where he had a very, very good start. Maybe it was Wednesday night. But look, when everybody play, when, when those two play well, that team just functions so much better. I mean, Anthony Rendon has still been terrible this year, and yet here they are still playing well uh, as a team. So look, the Angels have a lot to look forward to, but that has been the same for a long time. I don't know if it'll hold up, but I'll move on instead to the A's. I don't know what's going on with them. I got to admit, I haven't watched many of their games. Got to admit, I probably won't be watching many of their games in the future. Until they show me that they can sustain it, if we, if we go 30 games in the season, I'll say this. If they are 20, let's say they're mm, let's say they're 19 and 11, or maybe somewhere in that ballpark, 17 and 13 to 19 11, I'll start watching after 30 games. I'll maybe start watching some of their games and stop treating it as if I'm watching like the Cleveland, the 0 and 16 Cleveland Browns playing some of the best teams in the league back then I, in the NFL, at least. Like I. I I need some more games before I can take this team seriously. But for right now, they are playing very well. They've played clutch. Uh, they have, they've been a really strong hitting team, actually, which 
would make sense because they did trade away all their pitchers and got a bunch of hitting and got a bunch of position player prospects back for most of them. Uh, but look, they've been the surprise team for sure. And then behind them, those two teams are the Mariners and the Astros. They've been probably a little bit worse than advertised, definitely in the Astros case. Uh, but the Astros still have things to look forward to. Jordan Alvarez has been out. He's a big hitter for them. When he's playing, he's hitting home runs all the time. He'd probably lead the league in home runs if he wasn't injured at all uh, so far this year. Verlander has looked great in his few starts after his injury and his return from that injury. Uh, and look, when you look at the Mariners' side of things, they, they've they've played okay, and their stars, their guys they traded for, Jesse Winker especially, hasn't really hit up to his potential yet. So they, they have, I mean, look, it's early, but they have some chances they can easily bounce back from what's, I mean, it's not even that rough of a start. They're still seven and six, but they can easily bounce back from their semi-rough start and become the good team, a playoff contender that they're supposed to be. And then at the bottom of the division, you have a team that just forgot how to pitch. I mean, there is only one team in the league with more runs allowed than the Rangers. And that's the Washington Nationals, whose ace currently has an 11 ERA on the season and just gave up seven runs in the first two innings to the Giants before we started recording this. Uh, but we'll move on to that team later, very soon. But look, the Rangers have no pitching. It, it This is what happens when you trade your best starter, arguably, to to the Phillies last year, that being Kyle Gibson. You trade some of your relievers away to other teams, uh, including Julie Rodriguez to the, to the Yankees. Look, they traded away a lot of people. And in the offseason, all they did, I mean, and it was... They did a lot, but they just signed Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager. Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager cannot pitch. They can play a good middle infield. And while most of their their problems last year with giving up runs had something to do with their bad defense and generally just not having a good, good, good fielding behind their pitchers, it doesn't solve all of your problems to just have good fielding, especially only in the middle infield. So Seager and Simeon can help out a lot. And overall, they've scored 61 runs, which is actually third in this division, they scored 20 more runs than the Astros, but they're three and nine because they have no pitching. So the Rangers need to pitch better, and then they might be a good team. But I don't think that's going to happen very soon. I think they're going to need to start bringing up some prospects for that to happen. I don't think they're in a position to win right now. I never thought they were. I actually question why they signed Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon a lot, but. I guess you're just looking to get two franchise players to bring people back into the arena, but overall, I just don't, I, I don't see it that much, honestly. But you know what? They'll figure it out in the future. This is not the Rangers' year, and if it somehow becomes the Rangers' year, just say that I jinxed it. But let's move on from that. Let's go to the National League now, where the New York Mets have the number one overall record and the best record, or not only just in the NL East, I should say. But in the entire league, not even just in the National League, the National League West, the MLB overall, although technically tied with the Dodgers and the Dodgers have a better win percentage, but that's a different story. Uh, they have a plus 30 run differential, 67 runs scored, 37 runs allowed, one of the best pitching staffs in the league so far this year. And the 30 plus 30 run differential is indicative of being the best team in the league. Actually, not the best run differential, only second, but uh, I think we probably know who first is. And we'll get to that first place team in a second. But, uh, well, in a little bit. But, look, credit to the Mets. I mean, their offseason additions to get their offense to be better, they have paid off. And they've paid massive dividends. Also, what helped is they got this guy 
His name is Francisco Lindor. Last year, he was also named Francisco Lindor, but Francisco Lindor last year is not the Francisco Lindor of this year. They are just different people. Uh, it's not even close. His production is back. Maybe even you could argue better than some of his years in Cleveland that got him this deal, that got him the trade to New York and the deal that he ended up getting that giant, massive extension. But look, he last year just was not how, as good as he's ever been before. He just wasn't the same guy. And then all of a sudden this year, he's just turned it back around again and he is playing really well. Some of it is due to the fact that their schedule hasn't been the strongest to start the year. I mean, I, I'm not saying that games, uh, that a four-game series against the Nationals to start the year, uh, where they took three or four, and then, you know, a, a three-game series against the Mets, where they only took two of three, is, is indicative of them being the best team in the league. I still don't think they're the best team in the league. Those those uh, those seven games kind of skew that record a lot, because half of their games are against the worst pitching staff in the league, and this maybe third or fourth worst team in the league overall. So it's not exactly fair to talk about them as being the number one team and kind of expecting that out of them. But their record so far does hold that up. Uh, and overall, when you look at the rest of this division, every team is already four games back or more. They're starting to build a big lead uh, over the second place Braves even, who are six and eight, but look to Ronald Acuna's return early in May to boost them up and uh, make them a lot better. Uh, the Marlins are 5-7. and seven. I feel like that might be where they stay. They could be better than that, but they had a very, very rough start at the beginning. Now they're doing better, but still not great. The Nationals, as I said, 56 runs scored, but 76 runs allowed worse in the league. Uh, so that's not good. Uh, they need to figure that out. Part of that is because they played more games than anybody else in the league, but still, that's not good. Uh, and then you have the Phillies at 5-8 and eight, somehow at the bottom of this division. That shouldn't happen. They are probably the biggest disappointments to start the season. But they're the Phillies. They always do this, it feels like. Uh, but look, overall right now, there's not much to talk about because there's not much of a race in the NL East. You can't tell who the contenders are. Uh, we know the Braves have the best roster, arguably, in the NL East. And if it's not them, it's obviously the Mets. That's the only other team you can argue. But the fact of the matter is, both of those teams are going to contend the whole year. Uh, and that's going to be your divisional battle, but right now it doesn't look like much of one, so there's not much more to talk about. So instead, we're going to move on to the NL Central, where the St. Louis Cardinals and the Milwaukee Brewers are tied for first at 7-4 and four and 8-5. and five. They've both been good this year, not great. Uh, the Brewers had a lot of pitching issues early in the year, especially at Chicago. Just a lot of unexpected runs given up. Uh, but, you know, Brandon Woodruff has always described himself as a slow starter, uh, and Corbin Burns is trying to follow up a Cy Young year, so his uh, his his standards are very high, and it's very hard to live up to those standards. Uh, but I think overall the Brewers will be fine long-term. Their offense is still good. I don't see this team being a top-five team in runs. I don't see them getting up there. Uh, they might be top-five in the NL and maybe top-ten in the league, but just by a little bit. And overall, uh, I, I don't see them as the title contender that maybe, maybe even that I thought they were last year. I just really don't see it in them anymore. But I do see that in the Cardinals. Uh, that hot end to last year really feels like it has carried over to the start of this year. Nolan Arenado has looked great. Uh, Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader, really everybody on their roster has been playing well. You can name a lot of names. And I mean, look, 
I'm not even going to lie. I could probably not check the stat sheet, just name a bunch of players on their team, and I'm guaranteed to get six or seven of them that are playing really well to start the year because that's just how they've been. I mean, look, Dylan Carlson and Paul Goldschmidt have had rough starts, and Harrison Bader from from uh, a hitting standpoint hasn't been that great. But look, Tommy Edmond and Tyler O'Neill have been enough with power and overall with good enough play that they've carried them enough and... Uh, and especially Nolan Arenado, I mean, but they, I mean, team leader in literally every single statistical category and average home runs, RBI, on-base percentage, hits, uh, war, OPS, literally everything. But while he's going to carry them for now, they do need everybody else to start pitching it at some point. Uh, it'll happen, though, which gives me some confidence in St. Louis that they don't need every single player going crazy like they did at the end of last year to still play decent baseball. And right now they're playing very good baseball. Uh, then you have the Pirates at six and seven, and the Cubs at six and seven. Both of them honestly surprising me that they're close to five hundred. Uh, but Seiya Suzuki has had a hot start. If you did a if you did an MVP vote for twelve games into the season, the NL would be between probably CJ Crone, Seiya Suzuki, and like Andrew Heaney or someone, uh, some pitcher that has a zero ERA right now. But look, Seiya's been playing well. The whole roster of the Cubs has been playing good enough to be close to 500. I don't know if it's going to last. It looks like it's starting to tail off. They've lost three in a row already, uh, but the the Pirates are even more surprising. But what's even more surprising than all of that, how are the Reds so bad? They're 2-11 this year. They are awful. Uh, they, they, I mean, almost the worst pitching staff in baseball, one of the worst offensive teams in baseball. Overall, they're just not very good. They've lost nine in a row. Uh, they started the season 2-2, two and two, and now they've lost nine in a row, so not good at all. Uh, for the Reds, but let's move on to the NL West. In the NL West, we have one surprising team in second, but an unsurprising team in first. The Dodgers uh, continued their home winning streak all the way until 20 games in a row, dating back to last season, and I think including the postseason. Uh, nine and three on the year, six and one at home, three and two on the road on their road stand to start the year. Only 32 runs allowed, one of the best pitching staffs, I think actually by runs allowed, the best. Yeah, the best in the league so far. Uh, a plus 32 run differential, and 8-2 and two in their last 10. Uh, had a giant win streak going until the Braves took one game uh, in their middle of that series, but a 2 out of 3 series for the Dodgers there. Nonetheless, they move on to play San Diego this weekend. Uh, then you have the Rockies, who are 8-4, just one game back, 6-4 and four at home, 2-0 and oh on the road. 62 runs scored. You know, they, they've allowed 53 runs, but they've been just outscoring teams, just plain and simple. Uh, and they've had good out, offensive output. And by the way, the other guy who would be in that 12 games in MVP race with Seiya Suzuki is CJ Crone, obviously also Nolan Arenado, who I forgot to mention. But CJ Crone, I believe, has 16, 16 RBIs in the first 12 games. Maybe it's more than that at this point. Uh, and I know at some point he had six home runs and 16 RBIs. Might have been a little bit earlier this week. No, yeah, he's still at, he's still at those numbers. Oh my God, he's stuck on six home runs and 16 RBIs in 12 games. He's terrible. Uh, but look, if you looked at his pace, I'm not going to do the math, but he'd probably be on pace for somewhere upwards of 200 RBI and uh, what, 80-ish home runs? But obviously not going to keep up. However, a very, very good start to the year for him. Chris Bryant's also hitting 349. So overall, everybody's been good for the Rockies so far. And Connor Joe has had a good start to the year too, uh, with 15 hits in the in the early part of the season, with a 349 batting average tied for tied with Chris Bryant, I should say, uh, for the best on that team. 
But the Rockies have been good overall. Uh, the Dodgers have been still good overall. And then you have the two teams right under them, the Padres and the Giants, who are supposed to be the ones who are fighting with the Dodgers. Padres at 9-5, and five, so tied with the Rockies. Giants at 8-5, and five, so half game back of the Rockies and the, and the Padres. Uh, so it's not like they're too far behind. And actually, they have a better run differential than the Rockies. Less runs allowed for the Padres have 43 runs allowed and Giants have 36 runs allowed. So way better pitching staffs. And then Padres one less run scored on the year uh, than the Padres, which is technically not that good because they've actually played two extra games. Uh, but their pitching staff, that shows that their pitching staff is very good. And the Giants only seven less runs scored than the Rockies. So overall, plus 19 for the Giants, plus 18 for the Padres and run differential. Padres have won four in a row. Uh, they're playing really well right now. They're going to play the Dodgers this weekend. We'll really see. Uh, maybe maybe if the Padres are for real this year. I mean, last year they obviously weren't. The year before that they really weren't. Uh, but, you know, they always win the April World Series with exactly. Fernando Tatis winning the April MVP before he inevitably gets injured. Although, this time he's actually starting the season on the IL. So maybe it's a reverse. Maybe next, maybe this year he'll he'll start the season on the IL because he is and end the season as the actual MVP. I mean, obviously... Everybody wants to see him play a full season, but not going to happen this year. We're going we're gonna to have to wait for next year for that. But very exciting young player, uh, but very overhyped young team for the last two years. And, you know, someone mentioned that this year it's like the first time we haven't heard the Dodgers and the Padres as being a so-called rivalry when it obviously isn't. Uh, and the Giants are still real, the Dodgers' real rival. But all of a sudden you don't hear it anymore. It's almost like maybe now that the Padres, they don't have any talk about them mainly because... Nobody apparently outside of baseball, outside of people who follow baseball very well, cares about the Padres if Tatis isn't playing. Uh, but look, for one reason or another, you don't hear any talk about the Padres anymore, even though they have, they're have they very quietly putting together a very, very good season to start the year. Uh, and maybe the quiet underdog fits them a little bit better than the hyped up team and maybe without pressure on them and, you know, maybe even a better manager and Bob Melvin, maybe they'll play better. We'll see. Uh, time will tell, and maybe even this weekend will tell. If they get swept, I think we can start putting those conversations away and just realize that, well, maybe it'll never be their year. But let's move on to the bottom team in that division, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks. 5-8, and eight, not terrible, not great. Haven't played much games in the division, so, or many games in the division, so uh, they're going to have to figure out what happens when they start playing the real guys. But... Uh, I think that's all I got on the NL West. It'll be an interesting, interesting race. Probably the best race in the league, at least right now it looks like it. All right, well, let's uh, move on from Major League Baseball to the NBA playoffs. And we will start in the Eastern Conference, where the Philadelphia 76ers lead the Toronto Raptors now three games to zero. The Sixers won Game 3, 104-101 to 101 in overtime. It was a great, great, great game, uh, although... Some poorly drawn-up plays at the end of the game that could have helped win it for the Sixers. But look, Joel Embiid had 33-13. and 13. Uh, James Harden fouled out and didn't even play the overtime. But Sixers were still able to come up with the win. Tyrese Maxey had 19 points on 8 of 18 shooting. Harden had 19, 10, and 6 on 7 of 13 shooting. So pretty efficient for him, although the fouls stacked up and that wasn't good at all. Somehow he, he played 38 minutes even though he fouled out at the end of the game. Uh, but... Look at the Raptors, and you say you had your chance. That was your chance to get back into the series. They played a good game, but it, it, they didn't they didn't pull out the win, and that's the only thing that really matters. And because of that, uh, this series is over. It could end uh, Game 4, which is tomorrow, I believe. I think it could end with Game 4. I wouldn't be very surprised. Uh, if not, it'll end in Game 5 in Philly. 
But let's move on to a better series where Miami where Miami leads the Atlanta Hawks two to zero. Uh, the Heat won game two, one fifteen to one oh five. Heat played very well themselves. Uh, look, the East has, I mean, has the the losing team has only won one game, or there's only one series where a team where a team that isn't winning the series has won a game, and that's the Bucks and the Bulls series, which is ironic because it was supposed to be probably the least close series of them all. But this was the Jimmy Butler game in in Miami. Uh, Jimmy Butler had 45 points on 15 of 25 shooting. He was even 4 of 7 from 3, which is something he rarely does, to shoot a lot of 3s. 11 of 12 from the free throw line, 5 rebounds, and 5 assists to go along with it. Uh, no one else even scored over 15. Duncan Robinson played 7 minutes and didn't didn't score at all. Tyler Hero had 31 minutes off the bench with 15 points. Gabe Vincent scored 11 points. And Max Struess was the only other player in double figures with 14 points on 5 of 10 shooting. Bam Adebayo and Kyle Lowry only had 9 points each. Uh, but look... They didn't need anything else. They just needed everybody to play defense while Jimmy Butler just completely torched Atlanta's defense uh, and could be could could continue to be a theme. Uh, I don't know what will happen in the next few games, but I do suspect that Miami will be winning this series very early. I think probably in game five. I've said that the whole time. I think Atlanta will probably win one of these games at home. I don't think they're going to go home getting swept. It's possible they do. I don't think they do. I'll take the... Heat in five, as I did on the last podcast, where we even changed our predictions. And by the way, anything I say today is not an official revised prediction. It's just saying what I'm feeling as of now. But right now, I'm definitely liking my prediction from the beginning. Uh, but let's move on to the Boston Celtics, who lead the Brooklyn Nets two to nothing. They won Game Two, one fourteen to one hundred seven. And uh, let's be honest, the whole game falls on the shoulders of Kyrie and KD, as it has all season. However, when it gets to the playoffs and they are playing this terribly on offense, they're not going to win any games. I would not be surprised if Kevin Durant is going to shoot. Okay, well, I'll say this much. I don't think Kevin Durant will ever shoot like this. Uh, he, I don't think he's had two worst games in a row, at least, in at least, at least since his rookie season. He was 4 of 17 shooting last game. He had 27 points. But that's only because he got to the free throw line 20 times. Uh, look, he'll, I mean, it's possible they get even more favoritism from the refs at home because, you know, home court whistle and everything. But uh, even even then, I just, I don't see them winning the series. I, I, I think it might be even less close than a seven-game series that I had initially predicted. Uh, but I do, I, I do say, 4 of 17 from the field you can't win when Kevin Durant shoots that poorly, and you also can't win when Kyrie is going to go 4 for 13 himself. Uh, The Celtics had a big run heading into the fourth quarter and ended up outscoring the Nets 29 to 17 in the fourth quarter, 30 to 25 in the third quarter too. Uh, So 59 to 42 overall in the second half, 17 point differential for them. Uh, That plus 17 won them the game, obviously. And, you know, Brooklyn had the lead at the half, but... That didn't hold up at all, and uh, in the end, Celtics pull out the win. A very, very important home win. Let's see if the Nets can hold up their home court. Uh, As we move on to talk about the last series in the East, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Chicago Bulls are tied 1-1. The Bulls came out and stole Game 2 from Milwaukee. Uh, It looked like Milwaukee just took them too lightly, honestly. I think a lot of people have echoed that sentiment, but I I really agree with it. Uh, Everybody got better. Uh, Zach Levine shot over 50%. Vucevic shot over 50%, and DeRozan shot over 50%. And still, by the way, I would like to mention, 
they still only won this game by four points. Uh, and Milwaukee was able to really score it well at the end of the game. But look, Chicago lost the first game because DeRozan shot 6 of 25, Vucevic shot 9 of 27, and Levine shot 6 of 19. All of them took less shots and scored more points, except for DeRozan, who took more shots by four and made an extra six or seven. So overall, way more efficient. It's leading to the Bulls playing way better, and it's leading to the Bulls winning those games. But if they're going to go back to that game one form or even anything close to it, they're not going to win the series. And and it's honestly, I think a lot of people think the Bulls can win this series because of the fact that they played so well in game two. But... How many guys in the NBA shoot above 50% overall? There aren't many. And I don't think that's sustainable to have all of them shoot 50% for the whole series. It's just not going to happen. Zach Levine this year, 47.6% field goal shooter. He's normally a volume scorer, and he's a very good one. But he's never, only last year did he ever shoot above 50% for a season. Uh, DeMar DeRozan has been pretty efficient this whole year. Uh, Barely a touch above 50% this year. Uh, but look, those numbers, I just, I don't see them holding up. I, I, I just don't. And I think that the fact of the matter is they only won that game by four when Chris Middleton and Bobby Portis went out in the middle of the game with injuries, even though all of their big three shot shot at least 13 shots and all shot above 50, 50% and all scored 20 points or more. That it's not sustainable to do that, especially when Milwaukee's so injured. However, Chris Middleton won't be playing for the rest of the series. He's out at least two weeks. That's big news. But Bobby Portis is indeed back in this game, and he's already playing better. Uh, But look, Milwaukee is still going to win the series. I still have confidence in them. The fact that Chicago had to play that well to win by four is just insane. But maybe maybe Chicago can win a game or two at home, and uh, they might end up taking this series to six. But I don't think this is even going to seven games. I think Milwaukee will close it out earlier than that. All right, well, let's move over to the Western Conference, starting with the Dallas Mavericks and the Utah Jazz, where the Mavs lead the series two games to one. They went 2-1 and one without Luka Doncic. Uh, surprisingly, actually, if you look at the stats on the year, I, I forget where exactly I saw this, but there was a graphic, it was somewhere on ESPN, maybe NBA Today. The Mavericks actually, specifically against the Jazz, were better when Luka was off the court than they were with him. Overall, they are a much, much, much better team when he's on the floor, uh, even by metrics, not even just by the eye test. And obviously, he's an MVP candidate. He's a great player. But for some reason against the Jazz, I think it has something to do with Rudy Gobert. Uh, They are just a lot better when he's not on the court. But look, I don't know. I don't know what to say about the Jazz. They, They have a great home court advantage. They have great fans. Yet somehow, without Luka Doncic, without having to play against Luka Doncic, and after stealing game one on the road, they're down 2-1 to one in the series. It, it, it's just, I don't know how they come back, honestly. Uh, I have pick, I picked them to win the series. I'm going to stick with my pick because I'm stubborn, but that's really the only reason I can pick. I mean, they have had their full roster this whole series. Uh, and look, they keep it. Jalen Brunson keeps getting the ball and doing pick and rolls with Rudy Gobert involved and Rudy Gobert just can't really step out and guard him, so it's just been it's just been an issue for them. And uh, I don't know what I don't know what the Jazz are going to do about it. I think also what I was saying earlier is that Luca plays those pick and rolls a lot slower than Jalen Brunson or Spencer Dinwiddie uh, does. So for for that to happen, I think that's the reason why Gobert has kind of struggled guarding the perimeter. Those guys just play a lot quicker, uh, and he's always had some trouble with 
smaller guards. Obviously, he's the best rim protector in the league. A great, great, great defensive player. But he has had his struggles on the perimeter. He's been better on the perimeter this year than he's been in any other years. But it still is a weakness of his. And overall, how the Jazz are playing perimeter defense is a weakness of theirs as a team. Uh, And when Luka comes back, he runs a little bit slower in the pick and roll. But look, he knows what he's doing. And let's face it, he's better than Jalen Brunson. I don't think anybody's arguing that. So regardless of the stylistic differences, they are going to be a better team when Luka is back. I think when he comes back, as long as he's 100%, and maybe they might even keep him out a little bit longer because of the fact they are playing well without him, they're going to have home court uh, for the rest of the series. So look, they have game four. Even if you lose game four, you're going into a best of three, basically, where you have two of the three games at home. Take care of business at home and you win the series. And I think they're going to be able to do that. But let's move on now to the Memphis Grizzlies and the Minnesota Timberwolves, where the Grizzlies are now up 2-1. to one. Grizzlies won game two, 124-96, and won game three, 104-95. I'm going to go to game two very, very quickly. Look, this was just a bounce-back game for the Grizzlies. They got embarrassed at home on defense in game one, and they wanted to prove that they were for real on defense. They wanted to prove that they still had that edge. They were still going to play well. And they did play well. They played amazing, actually, on defense, holding Minnesota to 96 and then actually held them to 95 the next game, too. So all them under 100 twice in a row after allowing 130 in the first game. But the reason why I wanted to be so quick with the second game is because... Explain to me why Chris Finch didn't call a timeout ever during a 21 to nothing run by Memphis or why he only used maybe one or two timeouts in the whole fourth quarter when they got outscored in the fourth quarter, 37 to nine, it makes, I mean, I don't know. Like he, I'm not saying the loss falls squarely on him. It really does fall on the players because the fact of the matter is, well, there are arguments to both sides of this, but the fact of the matter is player shots weren't falling and the wrong guys kept taking the wrong shots. But when you see that happening, that is your job as a coach to slow the game down, call a timeout, draw something up, get a new rotation, and whatever you need to do, just change it up. It makes no sense that he never called a timeout in, the, in that at all. And by the way, the Timberwolves actually had multiple 20-point leads in this game. But if you look at the second quarter and the fourth quarter of this game, it looks like the Grizzlies obliterated them. It looks like the game where the Grizzlies won by 80 against the Thunder earlier this year. If you take only the second and the fourth quarter, the Grizzlies were up 60-24. to 24. With only the second and the fourth quarter, the Timberwolves got out to a great start to start the game, up 39-21 to after the first quarter. Memphis won the second quarter 23-12, to if you want to say won the second quarter. Obviously, that's not really a, well, a, a well-used phrase, I guess. But still, they outscored them in the second 23-12. to And at halftime, all of a sudden, it was 51-44. to It was manageable. The Timberwolves outscored them by 11 in the, sec- in the third quarter, uh, to make it 30 to 20, 32 to 23, actually by nine, I should say, in the third quarter. Uh, and they built up a big lead. They got their second 20-point lead of the game. The first one, I mean, look, Minnesota's up 47 to 21 uh, and 51 to 29. You could slice it up in a lot of different ways and somehow let it get to 51 to 44. And then they were up 79 to 55, and they still lost. I mean... I don't know what to say about Minnesota at this point, but it feels like Game 3 was kind of the turning point in the series, I feel like. If this series is a five-game series or even a six-game series, mark Game 3, it's always more... I mean, 
the stat is that 74% of teams who win game three in a tied series go on to win the series. This one feels even more important than like the game with, with Utah and Dallas did. I mean, I don't know why, but it just does because of the fact that how dominant the Grizzlies were when, they, well, I mean, they just were able to flip a switch twice in this game to come back from 20 down and, and, and keep chipping away at the lead. And all of a sudden, by the end of the game, take a commanding lead with three or four minutes left where the, the Timberwolves were getting absolutely killed in the fourth quarter and the Grizzlies were up by five at that point. But that five-point lead felt like a 20-point lead because of the fact that they came back from down by 25 to get that five-point lead. And in the end, the Timberwolves just didn't have what it takes to win that game. And speaking of teams who didn't have what it takes to win that game, Denver does not have what it takes to beat Golden State. Maybe they could beat them for one game. Uh, maybe they'll win game four, but they're going down in five, 100%. They are going to lose as soon as the series goes back to Golden State. Uh, Golden State won game three, 118 to 113. It's just, uh, what better way to describe it than how Clay Thompson described it? It's a pool party. They have the Splash Brothers and they have Jordan Poole and it's just, they're just at a pool party right now. It, it got moved from Denver, it, or got moved to Denver from from San Francisco, but the pool party's still going, man. I mean, look, Clay Thompson, 26 points on 10 of 18 shooting. Jordan Poole, 27 points on 9 of 13 shooting. Steph Curry, 9 of 17 shooting, 27 points. How do you stop it? It's impossible. I talked about how efficient the Bulls shot. The difference is these guys really do have the playoff pedigree and have done it in the past, and when they are shooting like this, they are they are absolutely destroying the Nuggets, and they continue to do it every game. Jordan Poole was a surprise when he shot 9 of 13 in the first game and had 30 points. This game, it, it feels like it's not even surprising anymore because it feels like he's just been doing it this entire playoffs. He's at, he's had 27, I think he's had 26 plus every single game of the postseason so far. And then when Clay is on like this 6 of 13 shooting uh, from 3, 10 of 18 overall, and 26 points, and Steph is coming off the bench, scoring 27. Even Gary Payton was 3 of 3 from 3, and 4 of 4 overall with 11 points. And then you got Draymond Green picking picking Nikola Jokic's pocket in the fourth quarter on the most important possession of the game for Denver. What's going to stop the Warriors in the series against the Nuggets? Nothing. And frankly, there is not much that looks like it can that, that can stop the Warriors in the West, period, or even in the East. I mean... They are looking like they could be the best team in the league right now. And it's not that surprising when you look at their roster, but the fact of the matter is they are just playing at such an impressive level. I don't know how to even describe it, but sorry, Denver, but you're the most likely to get swept at this point. And, uh, well, speaking about most likely to get swept, we thought one team was getting swept 100%, but all of a sudden New Orleans has a chance to win this series against Phoenix now that they are tied 1-1. to Uh the rally in the valley or whatever they call it, whatever their slogan is, it, it didn't help. And especially after, uh, look, Devin Booker dapped up a baby, gave him a little fist bump, and then all of a sudden, after 31 points in the first half, didn't score in the second half. And frankly, the way his injury's looking, he's not scoring in the rest of the series. Uh, it looks like he might be out the entire series. Who knows? I think they said two weeks. Uh, although, who knows? I mean, if they're in a Game 7 situation, he might try to come back and risk it all just because of the fact that it is a very important series. He, no one else on on Phoenix even scored over 20 in Game three, in game 2, where, where Phoenix lost 125-114 to 114 at home. Uh, Devin Booker had his 31 in the first half, and no one else scored over 20, which is insane. He was 12 of 19, shooting 7 of 11 from 3, and they were really relying on him that game to carry the game, and then all of a sudden, he gets injured, 
And uh, New Orleans just takes over. C.J. McCollum had 23 points. Brandon Ingram had 37 points on 13 of 21 shooting. Larry Nance even had a pretty important 13 points. Herb Jones had 14 points and some great defensive plays. He doesn't look rattled by the postseason at all. Uh, And overall, New Orleans is playing well. I mean, they do not look like an eight seed. It looks like the West doesn't have an eight seed. Well, and if the West does have an eight seed, it looks like it's Denver at this point. Uh, But look, they're playing very, very well. Uh, I don't know what to say. Honestly, there is a very, very good chance that New Orleans could take a few, could take one of the two games at least at home and at least make this a six or seven game series. I still feel like Phoenix is going to win. Uh, I feel like I feel like New Orleans game three might be a make or break game for New Orleans. I think this series could still be a five game series. All all the narratives could shift back in Phoenix's favor as soon as they win one game without Devin Booker, and especially if it happens on the road with New Orleans having all the momentum consider the series over again and make it over in five. But if New Orleans is able to win game three, they're going to have a dogfight in game four. But if they're able to take game four, they're really going to make it tough on Phoenix. I don't know if Phoenix can come back from 3-1 down without Devin Booker. Uh, And it's going to be very, very important for New Orleans to hold serve on home court and win both of these games. Uh, If Phoenix is able to win one of these games, they're, they're very obviously favored in the series. And if they don't, I don't know if they can come back. They might be able to, but I, I would start to doubt them then. And uh, very, very important for New Orleans to get that 2-0 lead, very, or 2-0 home sweep. Very, very important for Phoenix to avoid that 2-0 home uh, road sweep. All right, well, that wraps up our look at the NBA, and it also ends this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to join us for our next podcast, which will be on Monday, April 25th, where we will see the accuracy of Patrick's weekend predictions and look at more NBA playoff action. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his weekend predictions that were posted on Thursday, his Major League Baseball power rankings that were posted on Tuesday, and his NBA power rankings that were posted on Wednesday. All of that content is on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.